Hey listeners, Irfan here, one of the producers of Who Belongs. We have a treat for you today. Another installment of the Bridging to Belonging miniseries, this time hosted by Nicole Lee. Our podcast feed has been quiet, sorry for that, but we're hard at work on our other miniseries, Cultures of Care. We'll have episode three of that show out soon. And in the meantime, enjoy this episode. We don't have an aversion to science. We know about climate change and all that. But at the end of the day, if you can't feed and clothe the children, who cares about all that? If you're living in squalor, the prognosis is not good for you and your family anyway. Welcome to today's episode of a new subseries of the podcast, Who Belongs? The Othering and Belonging Institute is developing a series of podcasts to capture examples of bridging to belonging. We want a world where everyone belongs. So how do we get there? The answer, bridging. Throughout the series, we will talk to leaders implementing the work and individuals who have experienced the bridging transformation. My name is Nicole Lee, an undergraduate student at Yale University and a summer fellow at OBI. I will be hosting today's episode. Today, I will be speaking with Sharon Dunn and Gwen Johnson. Sharon and Gwen are both board members of Hands Across the Hills, a grassroots group working to bridge ideological and political divides among residents of rural Western Massachusetts and Eastern Kentucky coal country. Founded in the aftermath of the 2016 election, Hands Across the Hills formed out of a desire to meet face-to-face with people from a community that voted differently in an attempt to better understand each other. Sharon is from Leverett, Massachusetts, a town of 1800 that voted 85% for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Gwen lives more than 800 miles away in Letcher County, Kentucky, a county of 20,000 in central Appalachia that voted 80% for Donald Trump in 2016. You may wonder, how can folks from two distinct communities begin to bridge with each other? Together, Sharon and Gwen will share more about Hands Across the Hills' unique approach to bridging across ideological and political divides through intentional dialogue. Sharon and Gwen, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. To start the conversation, can you briefly introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sharon Dunn. I live in Leverett, Massachusetts. Um, I've been part of Hands Across the Hills since it started in um, 2017. And um, I'm a poet and a, a nonfiction writer. And in my former life, before I retired, I was a businesswoman like Gwen. Mm-hmm. I'm Gwen Johnson, and I am sitting here in Hempel Community Center, which is a community center in central Appalachia. We're in Jackhorn, Kentucky, and I was raised here, and I'm still here, like eight generations deep roots. So, um, been here. We've been here forever and a day. Um. There are about 600 people in my community, 
and I'm a volunteer manager of Black Sheep Bakery, and Black Sheep Bakery is a social enterprise owned by Hemphill Community Center, which is um, my heart work. And so we work in with folks, uh, giving them second chance employment, coming out of incarceration, and we produce some very yummy things to eat. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for introducing yourself. Could you give our listeners a brief background of the origin of Hands Across the Hills? What sort of problems did you see that inspired the formation of your group? Well, I'd say that the origin in Leverett had to do with um, the reaction to the 2016 election and a, a group of people formed that were really interested in bridging and, and really trying to understand why the election had gone the way it had. People were mystified. People were befuddled. People um, were really searching and, and wanting to understand. And um, we wanted to reach out and connect and begin to hopefully understand the other the other part of our nation that we didn't understand. Um, so that was that was really it in Leverett. What about you, Gwen? Well, there was a, a guy living here who was from um, Connecticut, and his name's Ben Fink, and he had come here as a community organizer to organize something that we call the Letcher County Culture Hub. And Hempel Community Center and Black Sheep Bakery are partners in the Letcher County Culture Hub. So Ben had wrote a Moyers piece that was published, and a man by the name of Jay Frost up in uh, Leverett at the time, I don't think he lives there now, but he lived in Leverett at the time, had drafted an email and sent it to Ben. Ben was and is a far-left liberal, and he was living down here in Trump country, where not everybody here voted for Trump, but almost everybody did. As in Leverett, almost everybody voted for Hillary Clinton, but when I got up there, there were folks who approached me who voted for Trump up there, too. (laughs) But it was about 80-some percent uh, in the opposite direction in each community. So they went about 87 percent um, for Clinton and and our neck of the woods went about 87 or 87 percent for Trump. And so we had this almost balanced number of folks who had voted on opposite sides of the aisle. So it, it made for an interesting thing. But he had dra- drafted that email as one liberal, if I may, to another liberal. And then Ben read that at, aloud at a Culture Hub meeting. And there were folks around the table who burst into tears because emotions were really high. And there were folks around the table who did not vote for Trump. And there was just... Well, you all remember the climate then. I mean, it was rather chaotic here, too, because mm-hmm. we were kind of mystified that it turned out the way it did. You know, I thought it was another Save the Dumb Hillbillies ploy, you know, that we've had for decades because we've been painted as ignorant and barefooted and lazy people and inhospitable so I thought it was some more of that, but, I, but I'm willing to talk to anybody 
about what I think or what the people, what the constituency here thinks. And so after uh, email was drafted and heavily vetted uh, to make sure that everybody's thoughts were had input into it, it was sent back to Jay Frost wanting to know more. And then that's kind of how the ball got rolling uh, with more emails and then eventually a trip to Leverett, Massachusetts in a 15-passenger van with 11 of us and all of our luggage and some moonshine and, (laughs) (laughs) you know, gifts for our hosts and that sort of thing. And um, we were about 15 hours on the road uh, going to Massachusetts and arrived there really late at night, maybe 10.30 or 11, at not knowing what we were driving into. So it was pretty interesting. But I'll give anything a try. <laughs> yes, and when um, they arrived, um, the Kentuckians, what I found was that um, we had spent um, many weeks preparing. Um, every, everyone was going to be uh, having what we call a homestay. And uh, so this gave an opportunity for everybody who was visiting us to kind of like live with a family, live with somebody who was in Hands Across the Hills of Leverett. And um, even in advance, we had had a film show at the library that the whole community could come to that showed some of the films from Apple Shop about coal mining and about um, how folks in Kentucky had been represented in the media so that we were sensitized to that and understood what they had been facing for so long. Um, And so what had been planned was a three-day visit. And that included an art project and then dialogue circles and several of those and theater games. And uh, we had invited the community to come and meet meet everybody and be able to understand what we were attempting with Hands Across the Hills. And we put out 35 chairs. And before you knew it, we had 200 people in the school auditorium. We did not realize um, the interest of our community in trying to understand what had happened in America in the voting process. And when we had our our trip going down to Letcher County, uh, was about a year later, Gwen, or maybe six months later. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. Again, we were put up in people's homes and got a chance to meet uh, people in their community, like at a Shriners breakfast we went to, where we presented what was going on with us. So I think one of the things that we tried to do is, as much as possible, spend time together so and talking and informal conversations in the car and and as well as in dialogue circles to begin to become, hopefully, friends. Thank you so much for talking about how Hands Across the Hills got started. Now that both of you, it seems like, have suggested that the issue was a significant political polarization after the 2016 election, your solution was that one community should travel to the other person, the other community, and experience uh, a different lifestyle firsthand. I was wondering if you could elaborate more on the intentions behind your group's specific approach to bridging. So why, why travel um, and experience, you know, that face-to-face encounter and immersion in a different community? I think it's very important to look into people's eyes. And I know that culturally, sometimes that's not possible. 
but with these two communities, it was possible to hear the stories that were told in those dialogue circles about our lives, the differences in our lives, um, to look into each other's eyes. You know, I can't remember who said it, but someone from Leverett, and Sharon might remember who, said that before we arrived, we were cardboard cutouts in their mind. You remember when that was said, Sharon? Yes, yes. And then after we arrived, we were no longer that. And I think maybe in hindsight, we all kind of had some of that. I knew there were going to be class differences um, and uh, all those things that happen, you know, that are unavoidable uh, with the differences in worldviews and, um, you know, religion and um, education and all, all the things that make such a difference in folks and in the way that they view, you know, form their worldview or the lens that they look through, in other words. I knew that 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 was going to be probably real eye-opening, but I was not at all prepared for how eye-opening for us. And I believe for the folks in Leverett as well, because there was a man that was at the, he was not a part of the Hath group, but he was someone who attended the assembly on Saturday when we went up there. And he told me at the lunch table that he almost fell off his chair when I said the reason the vote went the way it did in our communities here in the mountains was because of jobs. And he said that he didn't think we wanted to work. (laughs) So that's the stereotyping that the media has caused. You know, that that was some of the fallout from decades and decades of, I believe, journalists and videographers coming uh, into these mountain communities and wanting to work like a, maybe an eight to four, a nine to five day when most of the productive citizens were at work and the only ones they could get to talk to them were the folks who were not productive citizens. And so then as a result, we got stereotyped. It's just my thoughts on that. What I saw was that we had uh, in Leverett uh, gotten together and we really wanted to meet and, and face-to-face and really heart-to-heart to be able to talk to folks who had voted very differently than us. And we really, really wanted to understand. And subsequently, it's so interesting, people would come up to us even a year later, a month later, and say, did you, did you change their vote? And we finally said, you know, it was not about changing the vote. It was about trying to understand what, what caused the vote. What were the reasons behind? There, there are reasons. You have to realize that, that, that that's the underpinning of all this. The, the idea that our folks had up in Leverett was to construct, it was really a three-day 
weekend. It had dialogue circles. It had um, some theater games. It had an art, little art project having to do with our families um, that actually started off our first dialogue circle so that we could talk about our families, which is something we all have in common, our family stories. And we even had a public meeting where we invited uh, the Leverett community and the Beyond community to come. I remember when you spoke to everyone at, at that um, meeting in the elementary school gym. And people were afterwards clustered around you to meet in the little tiny chairs in the in the little uh, cafeteria later on. And the idea all along was to have a return visit to do to for us in Leverett to visit you all in Letcher County. And we did that about six months later, I think it was. And that was one, that was an amazing visit for me. I had never been to Kentucky. Um, I had never seen a holler. <laughs> I had never seen a mountaintop cut off to be mined. I had never been inside a mine before because we, we took a little uh, tour of, uh, of a closed mine. Um, and all along, we had dialogue circles where we just talked heart to heart and, and began to understand each other. You described these dialogue circles, and the intention was to just understand why why people voted the way they did, not necessarily trying to change anyone's vote. With that goal in mind, how did facilitators sort of enforce that or make everyone cognizant of that expectation? Or how did they sort of structure the discussions, the dialogue circles, in a way that welcomed all perspectives and minimize conflict. Well, I remember that at the, the very beginning, when I'm sure you remember this too. Really, there were ground rules that were set out at the very beginning of a, of a civil conversation of um, when something happened to be able to say "ouch" about it, to not sh- shuffle things under the carpet. There was also confidentiality was another another one of the ground rules so that uh, you know our stories wouldn't weren't going to be taken outside the circle and so it was the idea was to create a really safe place for emotions to be able to come out and to be shared. Thank you so much for explaining how how those dialogue circles were able to be successful. I imagine that going into those dialogues, people probably had assumptions or biases about the other party. So from your experiences or from um, just what you've heard from the other participants, could you share some of those assumptions or biases or stereotypes that people held, but perhaps were dissolved once people started talking to each other? I was worried that they couldn't forgive me for voting for Trump. But after Hillary Clinton went to West Virginia and said, and she said a lot of other things, but she said she was going to put the coal miners out of work. I couldn't vote for her. I fully intended to vote for her, but I couldn't. I knew what that was going to mean for us. And when the bottom dropped out of the coal industry, it was a really dark night of the soul for us here in the mountains. And we had already been hit by the opioid crisis that had just torn apart the very fabric of our community. And then 
all the people who were productive citizens were suddenly out of work, even the service jobs. Because if people have no money, then they're not frequenting restaurants or any entertainment venues or any of those things. And it was just the darkest time ever. And I knew what that was going to mean for us. There was nothing else it could mean for us. And so I couldn't vote for her. But then I worried when I climbed in that van that when I got to Massachusetts, these people were going to tire tire and feather us up there, (laughs) you know, but I was like, okay, they want to, they want to hear why this happened. I can tell them why this happened. And so I went. The guy who um, drafted the email that was sent initially that got the ball rolling, um, he said something pretty profound to me about the differences The folks in Leverett had done a lot of reading about Appalachia before we got there. And Sharon can talk more about that. But they had stacks of books. I was amazed at the preparation that they had done for us to be there. But Jay Frost said something really that I I just marveled at. I was like, well, that's, that's really cool. He said in some of his readings that he had drawn the conclusion that when we went to Leverett, that the folks up in that area would try to impress you when you went to visit them. And that when they came to visit us, we were just trying to make sure that their basic needs were met. And he said that it was two of the diff- it was just a difference in the culture. The two cultures. And when I thought about that, you know, we were impressed when we got to Leverett, you know, because there's a vast difference in the main income of the two places and like many different differences, you know. When they came to visit us, we were just trying to make sure they were fed and warm and comfortable and well taken care of you know we we just wanted to see to them really well and they saw to us really well but um they saw to us in like a much more extravagant way than we live usually (laughs) if that makes any sense (laughs) what did you say about that I wasn't aware of all that, Gwen. So this is really interesting to me. You know, Jay never shared shared that particular thought with me. Um, but I was thinking that one of the ideas behind a three day weekend and that kind of immerse, immersion, the idea was that we would stay in each other's homes, um, that we would sit around the kitchen table over breakfast, that we would have chances to talk in the car as we were going back and forth to various activities or field trips or whatever we were doing. And it's as a way to just, instead of always being in a dialogue circle, to have all these other kind of just regular, um, you know, family get together um, um, moments and, um, and, to, and to be able to be kind of have our hair down and relax with one another. And I think to be, um, I think that was an important part of, of uh, the kinds of visits that were constructed. There have been two visits to Leverett and so far one visit to Whitesburg, 
in Letcher County, and we're hoping we're hoping for more visits in the future. Our county is in the red right now with COVID. Our numbers are really high. Oh, you know, and and there's some reasons for that, but um, we don't want them to be at risk, and so we're hopeful that another visit can take place before very long. COVID really has changed how we've been able to interact in the past two and a half years. We've had to go with Zoom, and Zoom is not, um, I think your internet connections are not always so great down in Kentucky. It's true. Um, for the most part, and that's been a problem for some individuals who are part of the Kentucky contingent. And it's just, it's just hard. It's just different being on Zoom than it is like really being together, (laughs) seeing each other really there. But we'll get through it. (laughs) We will. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you like what you're listening to, check out our sibling show, Uncommon Threads, a podcast from the Democracy and Belonging Forum, where you'll hear from leading thinkers and practitioners working to build better democracies, even when faced with disagreement. You can find that show by searching for Uncommon Threads wherever you listen to podcasts. Now back to the show. So then after both of you participated in those dialogue circles and those uh, weekend gatherings, how successful would you say you have found the Hands Across the Hill experiment? How helpful do you think the dialogue circles were in terms of fostering an authentic sense of belonging and inclusion among all the participants? I'd say that the what happened in the dialogue circles really did help us see each other as real individuals, not as voters of a blue or red cast, really people. So that's that's huge. That's probably the achievement, I would say. In addition to that, the other the other thing that we started doing is we started working together on different kind of projects where we would share how we could discuss things. Um, in a civil uh, civil way, when you and Jay, you and Jay, I think, did um, columns that were about vaccine, mm-hmm. they got published both in newspapers up in um, the Pioneer Valley and down in Letcher County. So two different voices about the you know um, the believing in vaccines or not, and um, we had at least two Zoom events um, where a lot of people joined us and. Gwen, you were there with, I think, Kip and Pat and um, Mike Gover, and there were other, it was like, do we trust the government? That was one of the questions. No, we do not. (laughs) Right, I know. And I think it was guns and abortion. Yeah, guns, co, and abortion. Right, and guns, yes. Um, And it was all about people being able to discuss things with, and really listen to each other um, instead of, not listening and just barreling ahead. Those were really well-attended uh, Zoom events. 
you know, more and more um, uh, kind of uh, participatory events uh, like that help spread the work that we're doing. Um, I traveled to Leverett uh, last weekend and I got this phone call and and it was uh, in a really joking manner but said, Gwen, don't forget to take your gun out of your handbag. <laughs> You're going through the airport. There'll be a security check. Oh, <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. Well, Gwen, you should really tell the story of when we were down in Highland County, I think it was, at a, at a, a lunchtime. And you and Kip went at it. Kip from Leverett and you from Hemphill. <laughs> Yeah, so we had um, went to Portal 31, which is kind of a sanitized coal mining experience, uh, such as Sharon talked about a while ago was going in a, a mine that had been, had been closed. And so afterward, we went to lunch at the Benham Schoolhouse Inn over there. And um, it was on a Sunday afternoon, and it was... You know, we're in the Bible Belt, so it was after church, and uh, there were a lot of uh, little uh, demure ladies in cardigan sweaters in there eating their lunch, you know. And Kip said something about guns at the lunch table, and I just looked around the room and I said, Well, Kip, there's probably 20 guns in here. And he said, What? <laughs> There's not 20 guns in here. And I said, I'd venture to say there are. And he said, where are they? And I said, they're in the purses of these little ladies eating their lunch after church. And he like, he went off because there was this, this difference in myself and Kip and most of the people that I know around here. Kip felt safer when nobody had a gun and I felt safer when everybody had one and so I said but Kip don't freak out because there's not going to be anybody wounded and surely there won't be anybody killed here today I said I'd venture to say everybody's safe as in their mother's arms in here and I said and by the way there's a gun sitting in that bag right there at your foot because my bag was <laughs> in the floor by his foot and he about freaked out and I said but it's inanimate it's not it's not going to shoot you on its own you know it's an inanimate object <laughs> yeah we I mean we went at it it was it got pretty heated and I was really wanting to, oh my god because he he's uh he can argue really well and I can too. <laughs> so we got really heated and Jim Perkins was sitting at the table and I heard Jim say under his breath, he said, they're a warrior people. <laughs> he was talking about us. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. So then we go back in and we're having a, we're sitting down to have another dialogue circle and Kip said, Gwen Johnson and I just had a knockdown drag out at the lunch table <laughs> and Herbie Smith was sitting beside him and Herbie just like jumped around and looked at him and said, did she pull a gun on you? <laughs> he said, no. <laughs> so that's kind of how things have evolved that we can laugh about these. I mean, 
you know, I do take their their viewpoint into account when I'm thinking about things, whereas I used to didn't. And it's just because we're friends and I know what matters to them. And I think on the flip side of the coin, I think you can speak to that, Sharon. I think you guys probably do that too somewhat when it's not, things are not as cut and dried for any of us anymore or black and white, if you will. It's, it's, there's some gray areas now that I didn't have before. That's right. I think we've all, I, I say, I say that we've, we've all changed. We've all gotten grayer. <laughs> our eyes have widened and so have our hearts really. Amazing. Well, it's really interesting to hear that despite learning about these culture shocks, like whether some people think guns make them safer, some people disagree. You guys both came out of those dialogue circles as friends. And so that's really amazing to hear. Did a lot of participants feel that they left those dialogue circles with a different perspective than they had going in? So I know that the intention was not to change votes or change people's opinions on any uh, issues, but did most people feel like they, they gained a very different worldview after participating in those circles? There are a couple of instances that come to my mind of things that happen both in the dialogue circles and, and elsewhere. Gwen, you tell me if, if, uh, if you remember this too. There was um, an instance where in our very first dialogue circle about family, two of our folks in Leverett told Holocaust stories because their parents had uh, left Europe. And they told their stories, and because we, when you tell a Holocaust story, uh, you know, these women cried uh, because it was a really a difficult thing that their families had gone through, and they had arrived here. One of the responses uh, from folks in Kentucky was, you know, oh, you're actually immigrants, you know. Just like Gwen said, she was from eight generations of people who've been in, just like rooted in Kentucky. That's not true of folks in Leverett at all. Like my people all came over in the mid to late 1800s, much later than Gwen's. And and the folks in the dialogue circle whose parents had left, I think, Germany and Russia, they came over in the 30s. Somebody in the Kentucky group said, I'm meeting you, you're immigrants. And I was kind of taught not to like immigrants, that, you know, that they were dangerous and they were going to take things from us. But here, your families are immigrants. And so, I, you know, my view about that has changed. You know, my view has changed. Um, my, I guess the definition of immigrant definitely changed. The, the folks in Leverett learned a lot more about coal mining. And out back in the time of World War I, coal uh, being um, extracted from the Kentucky earth helped win the war. And that, that's something that coal miners were extremely proud of. There had been an exemption in order they could stay and, and extract this coal, which helped the war effort. And that's something that we didn't, we hadn't realized. We hadn't realized the amount of pride that went into being a coal, coal mining family. Those are two examples of information that opened our minds. There was a really tense time for me in one of the dialogues when we were discussing coal and it was early on and there was no, no understanding of the things that Sharon is speaking of now. And it got pretty intense and there were some 
judgmental comments about coal and the environment. You know, we don't have an aversion to science. We know what the science is. We know about climate change and carbon emissions and all that. We know about all that. We're not disregarding it. But at the end of the day, if you can't feed and clothe the children, who cares about all that? You know, if if you're if you're living in squalor and living in abject poverty, I mean, you know, the prognosis is not good for you and your family anyway, health outcomes or otherwise. And so if you're sitting in a place where that is the thing that you're more worried about than any other thing, the carbon emissions and the um, climate change and that sort of thing, well, then you're vastly better off than a lot of people around here are. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that it, that too was a, was a, a chasm, if you will, between the two cultures. And it's not that we don't know about it and don't care about it. It's just that it takes a back burner when everybody's out of work. I, Gwen, I could remember um, listening to that um, explanation that you've just given. Later on, when I was in some kind of public thing and some, somebody asked me a question, a young man said, well, you know, don't they know about carbon emissions and what's happening to the planet? And I delivered back to him just what you just said. You know, when you are worried about food on the table and shoes on your kids' feet, those are the things you're worried about. And 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 you want to have a job that's going to help you deal with that. It's, it's re- really interesting that people have to be told that, you know, the imagination isn't there for how circumstances could be different in another place in the country. Yeah, coal has not been kind to us, but it was the only industry in a mono economy. Right. My mom had three brothers that were killed in mining accidents, and my only brother, my younger brother, was killed in a coal mining accident. And so, you know, we've had our share of heartbreak and blood, sweat, and tears, but it was still the way that families lived here because it was the only industry. And it's been a pretty dark night of the soul for us since coal, you know, the coal industry took a big downturn, you know, because all of our infrastructure and all of our public services were based on coal severance taxes and suddenly there was no coal being mined. And so all that money went away and... There was nothing to replace it. So services got shut down and there was all kinds of fallout from it. And um, and we just, you know, and it's kind of how Black Sheep Bakery came about was we were trying to figure out how to employ some people as cheaply as possible. And there's nothing cheaper than flour and water and salt. <laughs> and so we just started, set up shop bacon. <laughs> I mean, it, it's um, in a lot of ways, the gravy train, you know, is kind of how I explain the coal industry. When it rolled out of here, we just had to envision, we had to look at latent assets and try to envision a different way forward. And it and has it been easy? Heck no. 
it's not been easy. It's been hard and it's still hard and it's maybe going to get harder as the pandemic goes on. Who knows? But um, yeah, it's been pretty heartrending to watch. Thank you for sharing those stories. In almost all of our interviews, we've heard that bridging is really difficult. Could you share any challenges that you've experienced, you know, attempting this bridging work? How have you had to navigate moments of frustration when you talk to people who disagree with you? And also, despite those challenges, why do you think bridging is worth the investment, worth doing? I'd say that, um, <laughs> the, you know, the time and effort both Gwen and I have put in over these years, it's, for me, it's been a transformative experience. I'm not the same. I view Kentucky so differently than I might have, you know, six years, six, seven years ago before we got involved with one another. I remember uh, early on uh, after um, uh, the folks in Letcher County had gone back to Letcher County after our first visit, and we got uh, an email from Nell um, Fields, and she said she was keeping watch on the weather in Leverett. And I just, I just loved, loved that. There was this kind of connection of like even wanting to know what we were experiencing on a daily basis. And that kind of, that's, that's, a, that's a form of love, really. And I think uh, things like that have happened continually. There have been a, I know somebody was helping Nell uh, doing a little coaching when she took a chair on a, on a, on a board down in Whitesburg. And um uh, and, and there's been um, uh, trips that people have taken together, a Kentucky person and a Leverett person, to have new experiences. Like Gwen, Gwen actually had a wonderful experience that way in travel. We could talk about that. You know, the friendships have blossomed out of the the contact that we've kept kept on uh, over these six years. Yeah, the experience that Sharon was referring to, I got. Uh, an invitation to go to France and work in a French bakery for two weeks from uh, Susan, who's part of the Hands Across the Hills delegation. And then there have been things like Kip and Judy. You know, we talked about Kip and I having these dialogues on Zoom about coal and guns and abortion and... um, and then Judy sends a big library down here to be, we've got these little free libraries outside that people can come and leave books or take books. And Judy has donated hundreds of books to those libraries. And there have just been a lot of benefits that we didn't count on happening that have happened. Uh, We had a solar project, and we got solar on top of our building and um, solar in three other locations in the county, and the folks in Leverett donated toward those projects, you know, because, of course, they didn't want us to use coal, and they were all about us using solar. And so when we proposed those projects, they were happy to contribute to that. And um, just to sit around the table together 
and to get to know each other's culture a little bit and to get to know the families and what's going on with them. And, um, and so I got friends in Leverett that I check up with every week and Sharon and I work closely together because we're both on the half board. And so we're in touch pretty much every week on something or other. Like this morning, I just emailed her for some addresses. and Right away, I got them. <laughs> and we've got a cheerleader now, cheerleaders that we didn't have when we've got efforts going on or things happening. You know, we're checking on them. They're checking on us. It's invaluable. It's, it's family. When things that are pretty monumental happen here, and one thing that comes to mind is the Black Jewel miners have been denied their pay and they blocked the coal train and picketed on the tracks of the train for weeks and weeks. And, um, and so when that news hit um, the news feed, I forwarded to Leverett, and and we had a a cheering section in Leverett for the miners, and um, you know, just whatever's going on here is of um, interest to those folks in Leverett now, and whatever's going on up there is of interest to us. There's so many of them that are Jewish, and when some anti-Semitic violent act happens, my first thought is, oh my goodness, um, how are they? Are they okay? Um, you know, and we send condolences back and forth. I lost my mom and was showered with so much kindness from Leverett. Nell had COVID and they sent money and Black Sheep Bakery catered meals to Nell's house and um, I mean, there's just been so many, you know, so many wonderful things that have come about because of these friendships. For listeners who may be interested in implementing Hands Across the Hills bridging strategy in their own community, what is your advice on how they can get started? Can you outline the suggestions that you would give to people who are embarking on this type of bridging work for the first time? I have two things that I have on my mind. One is that you really, on on what you might call um, the other side, you really do need to find a principal person who can be helpful to organize the other side. You have to have somebody who encourages and gathers people to be able to form a group that you can bridge with. That's one thing. The other is that we in Hands Across the Hills actually have begun doing trainings where participants come and they learn how to do dialogue circles and how to organize. And so that's that's another possibility that you can actually um, have a project in mind and um, come and get some training about how to maintain a project, a project that will really work and will really bridge to another community or another, another place. We held one last October and um, we're going to be holding another one in um, spring 2023. So I think those are, those are the things that I think of. Gwen? I think you have to have a strong facilitator who will hold 
the space in a safe manner because things get wonky really quick um, if the space is not being held. And I think the ground rules that we spoke of early on on here are really important to be able to say, ouch, oops, there's going to be things that wound and hurt. And, and I think just a simple apology or a try harder to understand when that happens goes a long way with participants. I know it did with me when I would feel so wounded initially. And then I would be like, you know, well, they didn't mean it and they just don't understand. And you have to give each other that that room and that permission, I think, to air those differences and not not stay wounded, you know, because you don't want to be a victim. Then nobody triumphs. But if you are, if you just say, well, I'm not a victim in this and I'm going to try harder to understand what made them say that. And they're going to try harder not to to hurt my feelings with this because they don't understand it. It just all works out in the end. I think that's what's happened to us. You just got to keep talking. You can't throw in the towel when it gets hard. That was Sharon Dunn and Gwen Johnson. Thank you so much for your time. And to our listeners, please check out our other podcast where we discuss belonging and bridging in more detail. For more resources and curricula on belonging and bridging, please go to belonging.berkeley.edu slash B4B. That's slash letter B, number four, letter B. Thank you.